Lord, we do agree with those prayers and do desire that today as we look into your word that we would have guidance and that we would see how it might apply to our particular and specific situation. And we know that your word speaks to us. You've designed it that way. So we praise you for that. And we desire simply to be obedient to all that you have for us. And as we look at this concept of your people that you identify as a remnant, that we would not only understand how you work in the world and have worked in the past, but may even help us to understand our situation today. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Get into our passage today. And as I note on the screen there, we're going to talk about God's remnant. Seems to be the focus of the early verses in uh, chapter 11 of the book of Romans. And Paul is addressing a particular group of people, Christians. I've emphasized that he's not talking to the unbeliever. The book of Romans is written to a believing audience. This was especially important when we were talking about the lostness of mankind. He uses theological terms throughout, including that passage, uh, not addressing to the unbeliever, but so that you and I might be better equipped to minister to the unbeliever. So also, he's addressing uh, this portion to a Jewish audience. They probably understand some of these things, but he's putting them together so that they may better minister to their fellow Jewish people. So he's talking about a remnant, and in fact, the remnant is in view as part of the audience here. I've gone over this a hundred times. Most of you have it memorized already, but we're looking at God's vindication of his righteousness, chapters 9 through 11. Three parts, chapter 9, 1 through 29, sovereignty of God is the stress in choosing Israel. And in choosing Israel, he passes over others. We're going to see that concept again in the passage we're looking at. But because Israel has been rebellious, not only in the first century, but even before, they are rejected and under discipline. That's the present first century condition. That's in verse 30 of chapter 9 through the end of chapter 10. And we're in chapter 11, where God has not replaced Israel with the church. We've kind of stressed that because there's some in the church that have that idea And some almost inadvertently have that idea because we think so little of God's dealing with Israel. So it's good to think in terms of chapter 11, where God still has a future for the entire nation of Israel. And in our generation, this may, in fact, is probably the main reason there exists once again, after 2,000 years of being scattered all over the world, Once again, there's a nation of Israel in the land that is described in the Bible. So there's a future, and it includes a salvation of all Israel in the sense of nationally, the Lord's going to bring them to themselves. I've tried to bring it a little closer to home in kind of a home setting to describe these three chapters A son that's under discipline may feel like his parents don't love him, but the father must deal with him and communicate that he's still the son, even though he may not feel that way and always will be. But the father, as I put on the slide there, I have to do what I know is best in terms of the whole family. So he's dealing in a broader basis than just with the son himself. And there's discipline that needs to be done. Maybe, if for no other reason, than to be as an example to the other children. So also God is disciplining the nation of Israel in his plan, in his directing of history. But one of the main reasons he's doing it is because Israel deserves it. Just as a son, you are being disciplined because you deserve it. You've called these actions upon yourself. But... You're not totally abandoned. It's only temporary, and that's chapter 11, and the discipline of Israel is temporary. When Israel responds rightly, 
They will be fully restored. And in fact, world history will continue as it basically, I call world history Jewish. We're somewhat in an interim period of time where Israel is set aside, awaiting for them to respond, and then their Messiah will return. So when Israel responds rightly, like a son, when he responds rightly, will be restored to fellowship. And fellowship in terms of Israel in a broad sense, not specific necessarily individual salvation. We've been looking at chapter 11, stressing that corporate aspect, that national aspect of the nation of Israel. And in that, the context, Israel is God's chosen people. Again, you've got this slide memorized as well. And the gospel going out to the Gentiles. How do you answer that? What is the explanation, particularly if you're Jewish? If you're God's chosen people, have you lost it? And now has it been replaced? Is there no hope? And the explanation throughout the passages, we've looked these verses up. We won't do it again. The reasons why Israel is set aside, several reasons, several passages, in fact, the whole context. And the issue before us in chapter 11 is God finished with Israel. In other words, is it over? And has the church, in fact, replaced Israel? So the answer we know is not not the case, is absolutely not. So kind of an outline form of the same thing, past sovereign election of Israel, present national rejection of Israel, but there's a future restoration of Israel. We can divide chapter 11 into three major parts. We've already looked, well, we've started to look at 1 through 10, that there's always a remnant. So we're going to talk about a remnant today, the meaning of a remnant. And I'm going to use it, by the way, as an example of how to do a word study. So this will be kind of a secondary thing that we'll look at. And the second part of chapter 11, not only is there always a remnant of God's people in the Old Testament, a remnant of Jewish people, a remnant of God's people, but there's also a future restoration, and that future restoration is yet future, 11 through 32. And then we have, just to keep our R's going here, a robust worship of God, the last part of the chapter. And I see that worship pertaining not just to chapter 11, not just to 9 through 11, but I think it concludes the entire doctrinal section that starts in chapter 1 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 11. Chapter 12, there's a significant change in uh, in what Paul is doing in the book of Romans. It is more the practical application of God's righteousness. So, primarily doctrinal, first 11 chapters. Generally, we think of the first eight chapters as doctrinal, but you can go all the way to chapter 11, and it's concluded with this robust worship of God by Paul himself. Now, we can divide the first part of chapter 11, the existence of a remnant. We're in chapter or verses 1 through 6. The issue is raised in verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people. So this is kind of the the main thing that he's getting at here. God has not rejected his people, has he? Now, the way he phrases it, it expects a negative answer. But to leave no doubt, he answers it with the most emphatic way that you can answer a question in the Greek language. Me gunoito. May it never be. And we looked at that phrase again. And now he's going to give some uh, evidence why God has not rejected his people, and uh, he's going to go through a series in terms of remnants, the existence of a remnant, the issue is raised, and then Paul gives his own person as, as a good example of God not rejecting Israel. What I stress there, Paul is the least likely because he was a great persecutor of the church, and yet God brought him into a saving relationship. So God has been faithful to Israel 
with Paul as the first example. We spent last week looking at two through four. Elijah is parallel to the situation that Paul is describing in the first century, and it somewhat transitions very nicely in the beginning in verse 5. So he takes an Old Testament example. We looked at the example of Elijah in order to tell us that similarly, there's, a, there's the existence of a present remnant in the first century. And that present remnant we could see as part of church age doctrine and part of what God is doing during the church age. But it's, it's Jewish. This is a Jewish remnant in the first century, verses five through six. And he's going to stress much of what we've already spent a lot of time on, this concept of election. And if you haven't already figured it out here, I'm using E to alliterate here, existence of a remnant, essence of the issue. Example of Paul, Elijah as a parallel, the existence of a present remnant. And now we have the concept of the election of this remnant that he's talking about in verse 5. So that's kind of where we left off last time. So when he says, in the same way, then, what is he referring to? What do you think he's talking about here? Notice he started in verse 1. I say then, now he says the same thing, except he adds to it in the same way, then. I say then somewhat in the same way, kind of carrying on the same idea. He's just adding to the concept that he's begin, begun to develop with Paul as the example of a remnant or uh, God not rejecting, and then a, a remnant in the Old Testament of 7,000 prophets that Elijah was unaware of. And in the same way then, now he's transitioning to the first century. And uh, we might kind of survey this idea that we've encountered in the same way the stress has been God has not rejected all. And he actually even begins with, with Abraham. In other words, within the family of Abraham, even within the family, uh, there's a separating and there's a choosing, there's a, an, an electing, you might even say. That's the point that Paul is making in chapter 9. And he makes the point in uh, chapter 9, 6 through 7. We won't look these up, but just to remind you, I've kind of quoted a little key phrase here to stress this idea that uh, God is always selective. There's always this concept of just a few, in fact. Not all of Israel is true Israel. Remember that little phrase there? Beginning in verse 6, when he's starting to explain that God sovereignly has worked throughout the history of Israel, and not every descendant of Abraham was necessarily part of the covenant. The covenant goes through Isaac, so not all of Israel, and you might even extend that, not all of Israel has generally been regenerate. There's always simply a partial aspect of the entire nation. If you go all the way to chapter 9, verse 21, he uses the word some. In other words, not all, just some. And he's going to make a contrast. Uh, he uses the illustration of a potter, and he'll make a vessel for noble use. That's related to the word in the text there. Or he might use a a number of vessels that are more common, and he's, he's, there's a separation, noble as opposed to common. The analogy is some for noble use, in other words, some individuals for noble use, and others for common that are set aside. So this idea of not all, and then even in uh, verse 16 of chapter 10, not all have accepted this way of righteousness. Not all have accepted it. Some have rejected it. So it's always selective. And then uh, in verse 10, God has not rejected all, but uh, Paul uses himself as an example. We just talked about that. And then uh, two through four, there's not all have abandoned the Lord as Elijah thought. 
He thought he was the last one, the only one that was faithful. God reveals that he has reserved for himself 7,000 prophets. And then even further on in verse 17 of this chapter, we're going to talk about another image that Paul uses, the image of an olive tree and branches, and uh, only some of the branches are connected to the root. We'll develop that analogy when we get to that passage in verse 17. The point I'm using is kind of this little phrase, not all, and kind of the counterpart, some, and then just uh, the examples of Paul and the prophets, and then the word some branches again. So this is not anything new. In fact, this is kind of a theme that Paul develops. So in the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. And that's the word that kind of captures this idea of some or a a particular few, if you will. And we'll take a look at that concept of a remnant. Now, let me use this word remnant to kind of illustrate and we've done this before because it's very basic in in doing a a word study the most fundamental thing you want to do in studying the bible is learn how to do a word study and most of you are pretty proficient just to kind of solidify it and to remind you and for those of you that are maybe new to this maybe i'll have a couple of you uh what do you, uh, when you set out to do a word study, what are some of the very first things that you want to want to do? You don't immediately look it up in a dictionary. So I'll give you a little context. hint there. Go ahead. Is that Connie? Yeah, context. Well, that's the main thing you do. But what do you do before you uh, look at context? But you look at, uh, look at the word in... Uh, see where it's used uh, throughout the Bible. That's kind of where I start. Yeah, that's great. That's very good. That's what you do. In other words, you want to see how that word is used. And some words are used in different ways. In fact, we might talk about a range of meaning. And you want to develop, the first thing you want to do is develop the range of meaning, the possibilities. In other words, how might that word be used? And oftentimes you'll you'll be looking up words that occur 20, 30. There are some words that uh, occur thousands of times. And those are a little bit more time consuming, but the process is basically the same. So go ahead Somebody's going to comment, Steve? No? Oh, no. So, uh, but yeah, you, you got it. Thank you, Ray. So you're, you want to develop the range of meaning first in order to see, well, what are the possibilities? Rather than narrowing in and think, well, I've got it. I understand it. I know what's going on here. Well, you may or you may not, but this will enhance and it'll help you, especially when you're dealing with a word that is used in a theological sense. And what you want to do is you want to develop what is called the range of meaning. And let me illustrate it with a, with a basic word that we understand in English. And the circle represents the range of meaning or the possibilities of how that word can be used. Now, this precedes a, a context. You need a context. But when you look up the word, if, if, say, you were doing a word study in English and you wanted to figure out how the word was used in a particular uh, book, or uh, uh, you might want to see how that author is using that word or in the English language in general. And when you think about it, this word, and I, I choose this word because it has a wide range of meaning. Not every word that we use, whether in English or any language, and specifically in Greek, not every word has a wide range of meaning. And the reason I'm kind of emphasizing this is the word remnant seems to have probably a wider range of meaning than most. In other words, most words that you'll encounter in the Bible. So let's take the word trunk. What does the word mean? Well, you don't know. 
until you kind of have a little bit of a context of how that word could be used. So you're looking at context or different contexts. What might be a context? Anyone want to make a suggestion? The word trunk. An elephant's um, nose. An elephant's nose. That's one context. Somebody else was trying to get in there. Storage part of a car. Wow. There's the first one there. So if the context deals with a car... You have a particular image that comes to mind when you hear the word trunk or it's used in that context and your mind works so quick. All you have to have is just a few little keys in there and automatically in your mind, you think of that compartment where you put spare tires, golf clubs, if you play golf, tennis shoes, if you play tennis, whatever. The root of a tree. Hey, Ray. Yes. Steve. Hey, Ray. Hey, uh. Just uh, something to think about, and this is really important. There are some, I'm going to give a couple of examples. Uh, the word repentance and the word salvation. Yep. Pay attention to, keep in mind those two words. Those are really important words to keep in mind while you're studying your Bible to find out the context makes a huge difference absolutely in what they actually mean yeah. so keep that in mind yeah in fact we've you we've we've done a word study on that specifically you know very quickly but you're absolutely right because <laughs> automatically and i've stressed this several times when you see the word salvation we're almost conditioned to think that whenever it occurs it's talking about Heaven and hell, in other words, lostness or being what we generally call saved. And that is not the case, as Steve is pointing out. And a lot of passages really don't make sense, even with that idea. Back to our illustration, Steve kind of jumped ahead there of how, why it's important, because you can misunderstand a lot of passages unless you understand how they're used. Janie, did you have a question? Oh, I was just going to say there's also, you know, the freestanding trunk. Yep. Yeah. To somebody, take on a ship. Somebody else suggested that. Somebody suggested an elephant. No, tree, uh, oh, no not an elephant. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's your tree trunk. Freestanding, you know, to put your belongings in. Oh, okay. A freestanding. Uh, okay. Yeah. There you go. Like a steamer trunk. Yeah. For ship. Yeah. Oh, okay. You can, yeah, you can add. See, the, the word, the, the point I'm making here is not so much to get at the, the meaning specifically, but to illustrate the wide range of meaning that a word can have. And back to what Connie was saying, you look at these individual contexts, and now you have a meaning in each of these individual contexts. In other words, if you're talking about an elephant, then the image in your mind moves to the front part of that element, uh, elephant. If you're talking about a tree, etc., communication trunk line or a box in an attic. And sometimes they, they might even occur even in close proximity. And for example, I've made up this kind of crazy little sentence here to illustrate how you can use the same word in the same context, but within the finer context each of these words is used in four different ways. One sentence, same word, spelled the same. It's the identical word, but it means different things in the different context. Kind of silly, but pack the trunk in the attic. You have in the attic kind of tells you the context of trunk. Now you have an image of a box, and it may be old, and it may be covered with dust. You pack the trunk in the attic, Put it in the trunk of the car. Now, the little phrase of the car, you have a new context in, in terms of the specifics within a little wider context of the same sentence. So now you have the image of that box that you're, you're going to put a box in the compartment at the back end of the car, pack the trunk in the attic, put it into the trunk of our car so we can drive to Africa and park this is why it's, why it's a silly sentence. Drive to Africa and park next to a tree with a large trunk. There's a third context that's very different. But I give you enough clues 
in the specific context so that now you have the third encounter and it means something totally different in order, the sentence goes on, in order to watch the animal with a large trunk. Four different usages of the same word, four different meanings, all within a close proximity of context, but yet within a very specific context. There's enough clues there that you know exactly what each of the words mean. Does that make sense? You could change Africa to the zoo. You could do that, yeah. Makes a little bit more realistic, I guess. (laughs) Okay. I just wanted to make it as ridiculous as I could, just to illustrate the point. Now, we kind of do this automatically in English. We don't think about it, but you almost have to think more about it when you're studying uh, words in the Bible, because some things are more or less familiar to us. But this is the process. This is the thinking process. Here's another word that you could use. I don't have a slide for it. I I could make one. But what about the word run? What does the word run mean? A very basic three-letter English word, not complicated. An annoying thing in your nylon stocking. A run in your stocking? So it has something to do with stockings? Wow. I thought it had to do with uh, putting on your track shoes and going around a circle or an oval. It could mean a, uh, a period of time of uh, like having a successful run of a business or a movie. Very good. Succession of time. So it means more than just putting on your track shoes and running around an oval, right? Mm-hmm. What about your Don't nose? Don't rush. What about your nose? Can your nose can your nose go around a track? Does it need track shoes when it runs? Probably not. Or your makeup? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or an engine? And what did you suggest? I think Janie said something about a rush, like saying, I got to run. Okay. And you also mentioned uh, running a business. So same word, but depending on the context, can have a variety of usages and in each context, slightly different meaning. In fact, in some cases like trunk, a radically different meaning. But run also, some of these are radically different, like your nose is very different from going around a a track or a business, running a business, very, very, very different. So when we come to the word remnant, if you do a word study, then you want to look up the words that are involved. In other words, there are different terms. And in this case, there are several Old Testament terms. I'm not going to give them all to you. We don't need to spend the time to be that detailed. But there's at least, I found at least four different Hebrew words that has the the concept that we're getting at in other words, the meaning, we're, we're seeking for the meaning of the word in 11.5. There has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant. And there's a particular Greek word there as well. So it's helpful to look up what Paul is thinking about, because Paul was familiar with the Old Testament, especially with this word, because this word is used only once in the context 11.5. We already encountered it in chapter 9, but it's a slightly different word. Now, it's the same word group, but it's a different word. So it doesn't occur a lot in the New Testament, so it's kind of harder to, to get a feel for what the meaning of it is, unless you go to the Old Testament and look up the, uh, the four and even more possibilities of what that word might mean. So when you look them up, then you're going to find out that this word has a range of meaning. In other words, lots of possibilities. It's not always used in the Old Testament in the sense that Paul is using it in 11.5. So there's lots of Old Testament words for Nate. Yeter is one of them. She'ar is another one. Old Testament Hebrew words. Now the one here is uh, lema, lema. That's the word in verse five. Now, when we were in 927, I didn't make a big point of it because there were some other things that were more important. But in this context, 
I'm kind of expanding our understanding of a remnant. It's hupolema. Now, you Greek students, what's the difference between the two words other than three letters that precede it? What do we call those three letters? It means a great deal or important. Hupo? Hupo, under. Hupo or, okay, under or, it's a preposition is what I'm getting at. A preposition that is attached to it. And in Greek, uh, when that happens, lots of things can happen, not just adding meaning, but sometimes it might intensify a word. Again, you have to do a word study to kind of see what what is going on. But in in these two words, they're they're used almost interchangeably. Maybe more one of them may be one more intense than the other, but we could debate that. So anyway, those are the two Greek words. And by the way, hupolema only occurs in 927. So you don't have a lot to look up in the New Testament because it doesn't occur other than in the chapters that we've been looking at here. But if you go to the Old Testament and you look up the usage of the word, you're going to find that it has, in fact, far more often, it has a very common kind of everyday usage And you've heard me say several times that every theological word has a common everyday usage. And let's even take the word that Steve proposed earlier, salvation. It occurs in the Old Testament and in New Testament, New Testament Acts chapter 19, for example, where it's used and it has nothing to do with coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Very common, the word salvation simply has the idea of being delivered from some possible calamity or some uh, problem. Delivered, uh, you could be saved from a war. In other words, you were victorious and the nation was saved. In Acts chapter 19, Paul uses the word, uh, the, the Greek word for salvation in reference to the ship that they were on that was about to to be destroyed by the storm. And he gives instructions, stay on the the ship, otherwise you, you won't be saved. He's not talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about the common everyday usage of that word. The Bible takes these words, these everyday words, and you can't think of a theological word. I haven't found a theological word that doesn't have some common everyday usage that helps us to understand that word. So it's helpful to understand what the word remnant, and it can be used in a very common way of something left over, basically. Last time, very briefly, I I alluded to you women that do uh, sewing projects. You'll buy a sheet of cloth. Is that what you describe it as, a sheet? I don't know. Length. A what? A length. You'll buy a certain amount, a length, a yardage. Okay, a length or a yardage of cloth, probably square or rectangular. And then now rectangular. you... Rectangular. Rectangular, all right. Now you now you cut from a pattern, you cut what you're making, whether it be a skirt or whatever. You cut it out, and what what do you call that that le- is left over or something that is is left after you do the cutting, after you get out what you want? Remnant. Remnant. You, you call it a remnant. That's kind of the common everyday usage. And it's used in the Old Testament in contexts like that. In fact, quite often in the book of Ruth, talks about food. And it uses the it, one of the Hebrew words that could be translated remnant, but it has the idea of food that was left over. Ruth chapter 2, verse 14, if you want to look it up. And also, again, in verse 18, it's also used of meat that was going to be sacrificed, the meat that was left over in Leviticus 7.16. It's used of anointing oil that was left over. So that's kind of a common everyday usage. It is even in reference to people in kind of a common usage as well. For example, in Deuteronomy, it talks about people, in other words, people that were left of a group called Raphaim, Raphaim, 
They're non-Jewish. Deuteronomy 3.11 refers to them. So it's a small group of people that are left over from something. That's kind of the basic idea of the word remnant. So it can refer to non-Israelites, non-believers, and that has nothing to do with spiritual things, has nothing to do with salvation. It's just used in a common everyday sense. And in terms of Israelites, non-Israelites, it doesn't have anything to do with the people of God. And in fact, uh, Denise last time uh, gave us a pretty good summary of uh, how the word is used in a more specific sense. And by the way, all of the Hebrew words more commonly refer to these other ways than the specific way that Paul is using the word in 11, in 11.5. In fact, in reference to Israelites, uh, we could think of several examples of where God refers to a remnant. And sometimes the word isn't even used, but you could even consider like Noah and his family as remnants of all of humanity. They were the only ones left of all of humanity that God brought onto the ark for physical deliverance. They were the only ones that found favor. And in Genesis 6, the word is not used, but the idea or the concept, or you could say Lot and his family, when they were called out of Sodom and Gomorrah, you could consider them something of a remnant. Now, the word is not used in reference to them as well. Now, we do have references to a remnant that would come out of Assyria and other passages that refer to a remnant, and it's translated in some New American Standard in that way, from uh, Assyria and Babylon. Now, it's getting a little bit closer to the way that Paul is using the word in uh, Romans 11.5. It's talking about a group of people that are Jewish in both cases, and these Jewish people, in fact, I ought to let some of you look these up. Somebody look up, while I'm explaining this, Isaiah 10, and I'll have you read the passage because it occurs several times there. And if I understand the passage, it's in the context of referring to in the future, and it may be a reference to a group of people coming from Assyria, coming out of exiles from Assyria. Isaiah 10, does somebody have that? Yes. I do. Who's that? Oh, go David. ahead. Who's the David first one there? Was that? Uh... Go ahead and read it. Katie. That was Katie. 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 Go ahead, Katie. Isaiah 10, read verse 20 through 22. 20 through 22. 10. Okay. I- Isaiah 10, 20 through 22. Okay. This is the ESV. Okay. In that day, the remnant, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Okay, did you notice the word is used uh, four times and kind of a synonym is used another time translated differently, but it occurs four times there. Now, it may, may refer to those returning from Assyria back to the land, or it may have a far more far-reaching uh, application as well. Similarly, somebody else, since you're in Isaiah, somebody else was going to read there. Read Isaiah 11, 11, one chapter beyond chapter 10. And again, this that. is, go ahead. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Oh, that was 10. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, from the islands of the Mediterranean. Okay. Gathering together a remnant. 
and specifically from Assyria and all these other places. In other words, scattered all over. So it is used in that sense. And in some of these passages, it has a future reference even beyond the Old Testament period that goes possibly even to the first century. And I think what Paul is doing in uh, the passage before us, he is talking about a remnant in the first century. In other words, a group from the nation of Israel that have trusted in Jesus Christ, and they make up this first century remnant. It's not referring to the church. Remember, 9 through 11 refers to Israel, and that's the context here. God has not abandoned Israel, but he has preserved, and there is, or that there has come to be, at the present time, the time that Paul is writing in the first century, a remnant. So that this is a subset of Israel, and also will be a subset of the church because there'll be Gentiles also that'll make up the church. But in this context, he re- he's referring to, to Israelites. And uh, there's some other passages. I think the context of some of these others refer to a remnant, even in the millennium. For example, Micah 4.7, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. I think that is far-reaching. Looking all the way to, uh, I think, the second coming and, and the millennium. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and, and forever. So it's, it's far-reaching. Also, in the next chapter of Micah, and remember in Micah 5, we have that messianic passage that refers to the Messiah. Now, that was partly fulfilled in the first century, but will be ultimately fulfilled in the future. Micah 5, 5, 7, and 8, then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like the dew from the Lord, like the showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. And the verse 8, and the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations. I think that is far reaching in terms of the millennium. Does that make sense? Right. Go ahead. Right. Is, um, the future, is that um, basically implying the tribulation or everything from the first century uh, on? What I meant there, <laughs> what I'm referring to there, are future, I was referring to some of the Isaiah passages, there's some in Jeremiah, future from the time frame of the prophet, which could include the first century, or like in the case of Micah, probably looks even beyond the first century into the uh, millennial kingdom. Okay. Okay. That what I'm trying to illustrate on the slide there is there were some Israelites that came directly out of Assyria and Babylon. And I didn't give you the Jeremiah passages, but there's a couple of Jer- uh, Jeremiah passages that refer to coming out of Babylon. And some of those passages look beyond the immediate time frame of the remnant in that time coming out of those conquering nations and look to the future. Some of them are indefinite and may refer to what Paul is talking about, and some of them may even be beyond that. And then certainly Paul, I think, is is referring to the first century and then the Micah passages that I referred to probably beyond that. And just a slide I found on the internet, quoting Isaiah 37, 31. And the remnant shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. And in that context, the remnant is Israel. So another kind of future-looking passage. So in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant Now, we might be able to think in terms of the concept that God always preserves a remnant. And you can think of other examples in the Old Testament where in the midst of apostasy, in the midst of Israel 
abandoning their Lord and falling for all of the gods during the period of the judges. You can, you can, you could probably envision, even though the word may not be used in those contexts, there are a few that God keeps. The counterpart to the book of uh, Judges is that little book, Ruth, and uh, Naomi and her family. Uh, that would be an example of a godly family in the midst. In the first century, Jewish people, the, the Jewish people, the God-fearing people, they would be considered a remnant. And eventually when Jesus uh, revealed himself, they would have been the early believers that's who Paul is referring to. It might give us some insight. You know, God doesn't use, uh, he doesn't uh, necessarily call the masses to him. Uh, we might even consider these great revivals of world history as almost exceptions. The rule, God working quietly, Elijah not even knowing that there were 7,000 prophets, and yet, God in his sovereign plan was calling these people to himself, which may be an encouragement to you. You know, you'll, you'll share the gospel with maybe a hundred people. Now I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt here. You may share the gospel with a hundred people before you come to that one individual that is ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now don't get frustrated and don't get you know, discourage and think, oh, you know, I'm, I just don't know how, I just can't, I'm ineffective, I, you know, I'm not good at it, da, 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 da. If you simply allow the Holy Spirit to use you in sharing the gospel, you can expect that the majority of the people that you share it with will even be antagonistic, not, not only rejecting the gospel, but even antagonistic to the, the one that brings the good news. And it'll be that one, hey, Ray. that few that trusts. Yeah, Steve. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's Jeremiah. He preached the gospel for years. And I don't think, I think he only had a couple people that came to the Lord through his years of preaching. Am I right or wrong? You're right. You're absolutely right. In fact, he is the weeping prophet because nobody would uh, respond. But God kept encouraging him. You got to tell him anyway. Now he's ministering when the, the nation is on the verge. In fact, part of what he's prophesying is the Babylonian captivity. So the nation is on the verge of being utterly destroyed and uh, he's one of the few that is of the remnant. That's kind of the point I'm making here. Now, let's conclude. I guess we're only going to get through one verse today, but that's fine. According to God's gracious choice. Let me kind of summarize the phrase there, gracious choice. It's in reference to this remnant in the first century referring to the few Jewish believers that are com few in comparison, you might say, in proportion to the overall nation, the nation in general put the Lord on, on the cross, but there were a few faithful in the life of Christ, the 12 apostles and a few others. And then in the early church, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans. At the present time, there's a remnant of Jewish people but notice, it's according to God's gracious choice. We've seen throughout the, the book of Romans, the emphasis on this is a work of God. This is what God is doing. It's not a human effort. In fact, every aspect of salvation is a work of God. It's grace, a constant theme, 20, 24 times in the book of Romans alone. This is how he starts the book. Verse 5, in the introduction, he introduces grace, and the whole book is about God's grace. Certainly, it's righteousness. That's the main theme. But a, a huge theme is the concept of grace. Salvation itself, entering into a relationship, 324, is by grace, through faith, alone, apart from works, 4.16, another verse that emphasizes 
Justification, 5.15 also, this justification is on the basis of grace. When you get to chapter 6 through 8, sanctification, we're no longer under law, but now we're under grace. The Christian life is regulated by grace. And now we're going to see in the next verse, uh, we'll concentrate on it. We'll look at it more quickly next time. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So that's what follows verse 5. And there's other verses that we could list as well. And in this context, we've been stressing this concept of choice, or we describe it as this doctrine of election. We spent, what was it, two or three weeks just looking at the concept because it's kind of a difficult idea in the minds of of several today. But this concept of, of election is very common starting in chapter 8, where we have it introduced. Well, it's not introduced there, but uh, one of the main passages, 833, the concept of election. Sometimes the word ekloge is used, like we have it in uh, chapters 9 and 11 here. That's the specific word, but you can have the noun form or you can have the verb form in in other contexts as well. The point I'm making is... Uh, this concept of, of election permeates chapters 9, 10, and 11, 9 and 11 especially. We'll see it in verse 7 as well. We're not going to get to verse 7 today, next week hopefully. Again in verse 28, and then again in 1633. The idea of God selecting, and I'll comment some more on that when we get to verse 7. I think in verse 7, this is a verse that uh, I think favors one of the views that I've kind of laid out. I've laid out within our grace community, within our uh, free grace community, there's a handful of us, two or three maybe, (laughs) that take a a differing view, and uh, I'll bring that out when we get to verse 7, where I think... God chooses not just for a purpose. In other words, that's kind of the the prevailing viewpoint within our camp. But I think in order to fulfill that purpose, there has to be a choice in terms of salvation itself. But that's just a kind of a foretaste of what we'll look at when we get to verse 7. Any questions or comments? This is probably a good place to stop, even though we only got through one verse today. Any So we looked at the election, stressing the last part of the remnant in verse 5. Now he's going to give us the essentials relating to grace in verse 6. We'll take a look at that next time. And this comes from the last phrase in verse 5 when he talks about according to God's gracious choice. In other words, it is totally of him and not of us, and he's going to more specifically expand the concept of grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Alrighty, anyone, any comments or questions before we close here? None? Any volunteers to close for us today? Well, Father God, we're grateful to have you, Holy Spirit, doing the teaching today. Continue Uh, opening up the word that you wrote uh, to our understanding. And uh, we're not asking for more information. We're asking for life change. And we pray that the the scriptures will impact our lives so deeply that it changes who we are and how we respond to you. We're just grateful for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God is faithful to always preserve a remnant I hope I gave you enough examples in the Old Testament. Now, we can apply that, and as we see our nation and the church depart from from Scripture and our nation from morality even, even further beyond, be encouraged that God preserves a remnant, and we can expect it. We can't expect revival and great turning to God 
if God does that, I think that's probably in terms of history, more the exception. We can pray for it and desire it and work toward it, but also be encouraged that if it doesn't come, remain faithful because God is faithful to always preserve a remnant. And we want to be sure that we're part of that remnant. Okay, uh, let's, I asked uh, Karen and Gary if they would, if they would uh, share a little bit. You guys there? Yes, good morning. Yeah, we're here. Um, it's Gary and Karen, and um, I'm really glad that Ray brought up the whole idea of grace because um, that really does uh, been a theme throughout the, the uh, life of Gary and I is God's grace. We've seen God's grace over and over and over again. Um, one of the biggest ones is the fact that both of us were brought up in Christian homes with Christian parents who believed and loved the Lord. Um, the other thing that we felt really blessed with is that we had, we both had parents that loved each other and gave us an example of um, what a good relationship looks like. And uh, both of us uh, grew up in the church. <clears throat> That's our experience. Um, so you, you've had a perfect life then, really, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but uh, it, it was just really interesting when we, when we thought about it, is just that we've never, both of us have just, um, just believed God's word, um, believed in the Lord, and um, that is uh, something that is very important to both of us. Our actual um, coming to know the Lord, Gary did it when he was 10 and um, was a vacation Bible school. And it was with Thurley McAdams. And she had the privilege of doing it with uh, our son, Daniel, also. So I thought that was pretty cool that it was uh, father and son were both led to the Lord by the same godly woman. Um, at 10, uh, Grace Church had a church camp, and I went. And that was when um, I physically, you know, um, said, yes, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And, but, uh, again, um, the church we grew up in, um, they provided, uh, Sunday school teachers that were amazing. Um, the pulpit had a pa pastors who were, um, teaching God's word and also just the young marrieds group. Um, we, uh, Gary led a uh, family group, um, for 10 years. So once a week we, um, we met together. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that there was a great deal of um, time spent with other Christians and um, being nurtured in the word. And so uh, we met at, ch at church and um, it was the summer between when he was uh, graduated from high school into college and I was coming into the high school group. Um, and four years later, we got married on August 3rd, 1974, by Grace, in Grace Church by Ron Miller. And um, we have two sons, Kenneth John. He was born March 30th, 78. And we have Daniel Thomas, and he was born 11, 12, 80. I can't believe my youngest is going to be 40 years old in November. <laughs> but God has led us through various jobs and um, ups and downs, and particularly, I would say, with um, the growth, a lot of it, had the trials have been through with the things that have happened with our sons. And uh, But we've seen God's faithfulness through the years. So, I don't know. Is that kind of what you were thinking of, Bree? Well, yeah, just mainly so people kind of get to know who you are. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, both of us ended up doing BSF. Gary actually did it first, early on, and um, then I did it later, and I did eight years, and then I've just finished nine. So I've been in it 17, and you did what, about eight, nine? Hmm. Five. Um, two or three? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so about around eight years or so. So Great. Um, Great. You know, God just provided so many wonderful, and then there were times when they just brought in just the right conference, you know, mm. so that you would go and it would just give a shot in the arm to your marriage. I mean, it was, we've just seen it over and over where God has just 
ministered to us in that way. Yeah. So you've seen God's grace over a whole lifetime, basically. Maybe next yeah. time we need to have somebody introduce themselves that uh, came to the Lord late in life and how God was gracious from that yeah. perspective. Yeah, because we were we were both we were both young and it and it's the only thing either one of us ever knew just because our that's what our families were. Um, mm-hmm. Gary was very fortunate in having a father who loved the word and studied it and uh, and gave that enthusiasm to all of his children. Yeah. Does Gary get to talk, by the way? No, I'm in total agreement. <laughs> we we put this together last night after I talked to you. Yeah. So the, the, these are his words. We we worked on them together. Yes. But he said, "You get to say it, Karen." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just knowing both of you, I I'm just kind of kidding you. All right. Any uh, any last minute comments by anybody or? I will just put in a plug for family groups, for small groups. We were part of the Charons, uh, of the Cordes's uh, small group way back. I can't even remember when it started. And that, that was so affirming to our, this is Mary Lee and Bill. And that was so affirming to our faith walk as well, to have that community, that small community to walk through. So I'm just giving a plug when you can plug into a small group. Uh, do so because it it is so supportive it can be so supportive it can also be i guess very bad if there's a a bad spirit in there but when you have people who love the lord and who are seeking to follow him it is really a blessing i would agree with mary lee um gary and i didn't have all the camping equipment but that group loved to go camping and we would be off doing all kinds of fun things together. I mean, um, and, and to meet once a week, our Daniel, our son, was mentioning how much those years meant to him just because he was there. He was a part of it. And the people that were um, part of that cared about our kids. Um, you can't ask for better. I agree with Mary Lee. Yeah, I, I have a little history trivia for you. Uh, in 1973, uh, first of all, when we'd come back to Albuquerque, we were living in Minnesota, and we were going to to the church George and Sandy Meisinger uh, had started up there. And when we'd come back here, we we visited uh, Grace Church and saw and listened to Ron Miller. And because Ron Miller last name starts with M and George Meisinger's name starts with M. They sat next to each other in chapel at Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, so anyway, we were all excited about coming back here and going to Grace Church uh, in 75. And uh, we introduced my dad uh, to uh, Grace Church in 1973. And for two continuous years under uh, Ron Miller's teaching, Dad uh, gave up his uh, his football games on Sunday and came to church. <laughs> wow. Huge. <laughs> Praise yeah. God. Yeah. From one religion to the other, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I can uh, just say a little word for uh, family life groups, too. Um, most of you are families, but I was single. And I came to Grace Church in 82. Um I think it was shortly thereafter. I don't know what year, but I, I got involved in a, in a family group, too. And uh, we had couples, but not children in the group that I was in through the years. Um, so we were another sort of specialized group. Um, but I was with um, Ralph and Linda Dawson and uh, in their home. Usually we met there. And then later on, um, when they start changing things at church, um, this group sort of, well, some of them moved away and one thing and another happened. But um, uh, then we had, ended up, some of us that were left, I think, were, were in uh, Don Hossink's group. Um, when he was away, usually Dennis Vick took over as far as leader. Um, but um, always there was this little group that met twice a month, once for a potluck and prayer and another time for Bible study and prayer. So um, this was important to me as a single person because it was a group that that always met and we prayed for each other consistently. Good. 
Any other final words before we uh, shut this thing down? I guess my only final word. I guess my only final word would be the fact that small groups are important to our growth. You can't just go to a church or even just be with a Zoom. We need a, a weekly connection, face to face, walking with each other. That is that is all part of being the body of Christ. This is ex, you know the teaching and everything we get is excellent. It's also really good to have a small body to walk with. Good. This is Janie, and I'm willing to open my home to about 11 people, maybe a dozen. So there you go, North Rio Rancho, and there's a patio. Great. If somebody's afraid, you know, to be in a house with COVID. Hmm. So uh, we're fearless. <laughs> we are fearless. Well, what people. is worth? I'm in North Rio, though. <laughs> all righty. Have a good week, you all. Thanks for sharing, Karen. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, yes. Yeah, Gary and Karen, it was great. It Good. was. It was wonderful. It was fun. Nice to meet Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Have a great week. Bye. Bye everyone. Thank Bye. you for the teaching. It was excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Have a good week, everybody. Hey, bye, Nate and Ruth. Bye. Bye, Jen. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>